Good afternoon. It is Chickie Fitzgerald with the Executive Girlfriends Group. It is Friday, April 12, 2013, and we have a great topic today, and it is uh, actually a very simple one, and that is the topic of conversation and the whole phenomenon of communication behind that uh, that frames how we do business today. And our guest today is Rose Fast. She is the author of a book with a really intriguing title, The Chocolate Conversation, Lead Bittersweet Change, Transform Your Business. Rose, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. Rose, you know, I loved the introduction to your book where you talked about being invited to a bring-your-own-chocolate party. And uh, I don't happen to be a chocoholic. I'm married to one. And I, I've got one that's a, a teen in training, chocoholic. And uh, so this one, I, I well, I, I, I would be telling the story if I jumped ahead and said where I fit. But why don't you tell us the story of the party? Because I think it's a perfect framework for people to understand why you used the whole chocolate metaphor. Sure. So as you stated, Cheeky, I was invited to a death by chocolate party, which I thought was kind of interesting. And it was a BYOC, which I also thought was kind of interesting, bring your own chocolate. Um, And so I went, and I was excited about going because so often when you get invited to social events, you don't know what you have in common and how long you're going to be holding that drink standing on a particular sideline. So I went with the intent of meeting people that I had a huge amount in common with. Uh, And when I got there, while I did have a lot in common, everyone there loved chocolate, I recognized that people were very unique in the way that they perceived what real chocolate was all about. And there were tremendous diverse opinions. Uh, So as I was walking around the room, I met chocolate snobs, I met chocolate intellectuals. I met people that came from all walks of all things chocolate. Um, And it struck me that a simple concept like the love of chocolate could render so many uh, energized conversations. I mean, people would get exercised around these things. Years later, uh, I happened to be sitting in an all-company meeting and listening to the CEO set out the direction for the new year. And I saw people in the room all nodding, uh, what I call the New York nod. And as we were walking back to our offices, I was really intrigued by the unique interpretations of what everyone thought they heard. And I was brought back to that death by chocolate uh, party. And I thought to myself, isn't this interesting? We're here in a business Setting and we're having a chocolate conversation. And you can substitute the word chocolate for growth, and the very same unique interpretations are taking place. So that was sort of the impetus and the inspiration for this whole concept and my thought process, which came to, uh, came to me in that meeting. Well, let me just uh, add, add a little color here or flavor, if you will, that when you walked in, you actually came bearing your famous chocolate cake. And you were I actually did. Quite, quite proud of the fact that you had this amazing homemade chocolate cake. And when you came in, you were greeted with a seven-foot table filled with every chocolate confection known to man. 
That is correct. And the one conversation, and, you know, as I said, I am not a, a chocoholic, but I do, uh, I love red wine, and as a result, I really, really love bittersweet dark chocolate because it goes so well with a glass of wine. Yes, it and does. <laughs> it does. <laughs> but you were uh, at one point talking not to the chocolate snob, but to the, the person who really was rather indifferent about chocolate to the point where a Snickers would actually meet his yeah, particular it was, needs. Yeah, it was really very interesting. And I and actually so I went was, there. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. I actually went there with my killer chocolate cake, and I thought I was going to be the hit of the party. Um, and uh, <laughs> true to form, I walk in the door, and I'm like, oh, my God. Um, so I did see that seven-foot laden table. And, I mean, there was everything from homemade truffles to layers of different mousse in different chocolates, milk, dark, white, um, just really amazing, amazing different chocolate um, combinations. And then, as you stated, Cheeky, I was engaged in a conversation with a woman who brought the very custom truffle uh, to the party and this guy, and she was saying that if she was going to eat chocolate, it was definitely going to have to be uh, very fine, and she would have to savor it long after she had eaten it. And, you know, she was pin thin, which always gives me a hoot because, you know, I'm always looking at my thighs and thinking, oh, my God. <laughs> um, but here's this uh, this guy who's like rolling his eyes, and he goes, "If I'm dying for a piece of chocolate, a Snickers will do just fine." And uh, and she really was insulted and uh, kind of walked away, this sort of indignant uh, feeling about it all. And and that too, you begin to realize people's standards for what they think something is very different. Right. Well, and and I love that you say that in our business conversations, you could replace the word chocolate with growth, innovation, and any number of buzzwords that we use uh, in industry. And let me let me just go back and and have you give us a, a bit of a thumbnail before you wrote this book, because you you have a lot of corporate experience in technology and consumer based industries, and you've opened new businesses, and you've done global deals, and you've done merger and acquisitions. So tell us a little bit about that before uh, we dive more into the chocolate conversation. Yeah. So. Before I wrote the book, actually, the book came really after 30 years of being in a career, um, and it's probably been building up over time. But when I was uh, when I was in college, I worked in retail, um, in, in actually in Lord and Taylor, uh, and then shortly thereafter, I went on an executive uh, training program with Saks Fifth Avenue, and I left and uh, and determined that you know I got sort of talked to about uh, Xerox and would I like to come in and work in uh, a technology field. And it was very interesting because they were seeking women at the time. There were not a lot of women working in that field. Um, In fact, very, very few. Uh, And so I didn't understand in my own mind whether I would actually enjoy that. Uh, I had been coming out of the fashion world, consumer products and cosmetics and all the excitement of that, which really fit very well my personality and my creativity and who I was. And I thought, you know, how would I fare in this kind of an environment? And I had opened new businesses. You're correct. In the interim, I uh, literally launched Mary Quant in this country. 
with a gentleman by the name of Jack Winters, and mm-hmm. we created a, a whole new market with Mary Quant Cosmetics, and I absolutely loved it, Cheeky. Mm-hmm. Um, and then London came along, took over the company. It changed dramatically, and I determined that it was time to do something else. I was very young, uh, in my 20s, and I got this call from Xerox, uh, a, a co- corporate officer that I had met socially, his wife, and she was very impressed, and he was looking for female managers to be on a fast track. And he said, you know, would you be willing to come try us out? And I thought, Wow. Um, so there were two things that came into mind. One, I'd probably get a very good corporate education uh, and a good business education. And two, um, I knew the brand was very, very solid, and I'd have an opportunity to work for a large global company that you know I could grow with so, and that I would be in the minority. Uh, so I did go, and I was one of two women uh, that they had placed on a management fast track in New York, and uh, it was quite a ride. I uh, I never anticipated what it would be like. I will tell you one very funny story, and then we can move on. <laughs> I was standing in the middle of a group of good old boys, and I was with the one other woman in New York, um, and one of the guys walked up and said, you are the new girl, aren't you? And I said, yes, and he goes, would you see my automatic document handler and I was so embarrassed everybody's standing around looking at me and I thought well I can do one of two things I can shrivel and look like the silly girl that he wants me to look like or I can use my verbal expertise and just deal with this and that's of course a moment of thinking so I turned around and I said well I might be interested but I heard you shut down after one copy at which point the whole group broke into laughter and I kind of got accepted by the good old boys oh and uh, made my way in. But that's what women had to go through in those days. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I've worked it in lots of male-dominated companies. Well, it was crazy. But I'm not sure I've ever had that moment of truth. That's amazing. <laughs> and I mean, you know, this is not something I would normally tell on an interview, but it was one of those moments when just it came into my head. My dad's a Marine, um, passed away in August, but he, you know, he used to say to me, don't ever, ever back down. You know, just stand, think, and go forward. Uh, and it was, uh, it was a moment. It kind of, you know, had a lot of levity, and everything sort of broke up. And the next thing I knew, the guy who was running the legal practice for, uh, for Xerox kind of got me uh, under his wing, and I was mentored uh, at that early stage in my career there. And later, as you know, um, began my my professional journey of really growing up through the ranks. It was a great company to learn from. I did work for Ann Mulcahy um, toward the end, and I became their chief transformation officer, which is mm-hmm. written about in the book. Um, and it was before the word transformation was in vogue People would ask me, what does it mean to be a chief (laughs) transformation officer? And I told them, well, if you don't change, you're under arrest. Um, uh, But it was was the genesis for what I ultimately got to do in in my own company. 
Well, let's go back to the book. And I know you're going to weave in a lot of the, the various things from your experience at Xerox and Gartner and, and uh, various places that you have been throughout your career. You you start the book by uh, the chapter is Death by Chocolate, which, you know, of course, is the extension of the party. But the, the topic of this first chapter is unwrapping chocolate conversations. And, yes. of course, the metaphor of taking a chocolate and unwrapping it. But how do you unwrap a conversation? Yeah, so this sort of came to me that even in life, we as human beings have a tendency to talk from our particular worldview, um, how we've experienced the world. And while we think we're being very clear, even if it's choosing a restaurant we all think we're going to like, we have an ideal in our heads, and that differs very often from what the person who's on the receiving end of that conversation has in their head. Um, And I believe, like chocolate, there are layers to a conversation. There's the high level or the common general view. Chocolate, growth, innovation. Um, I like Thai food. Why don't we go to a Thai restaurant? Um, Any number of conversations that you have. That second layer is people's translation of that worldview into their standard, what they see, what you think is a great Thai restaurant versus what I would. Um, And then what often happens, and I talk about this third layer, which people avoid, is when people are disappointed and they get concerned, gee, I thought Cheeky was going to give me a truffle, and what she gave me was this bittersweet dark chocolate that she likes to have with red wine. And that wasn't what I had my heart set on. Uh, so now I am, I'm expressing a concern. Um, and so often in, in any frame of life, whether it's the children that we raise, the people that we have relationships with in our personal life or in business, we view a concern as something that we really want to avoid. And I think that's probably the greatest place to get good feedback because underneath every concern is an unmet need, whether Mm -hmm. it's a customer expressing that concern, a significant other, a child, a coworker, a boss, it doesn't matter. That concern is the unmet need. And if I can get to the unmet need and understand the standard that person had for what they did need, I can allay allay those concerns and have what I consider to be a complete conversation where I am expressing my worldview, but I'm also understanding how someone is interpreting it and what, if anything, is going to be a potential concern for how we go about making that worldview real. Well, and and implied in all of that is that if we don't know how to listen and ask questions and we uh, continually have monologues, <laughs> really with ourselves because the other person isn't getting to interact, then we don't even have a conversation to begin with. And and I we were talking before the show started about the generational differences and uh, you know, the, this generation that's coming up who has spent most of their time communicating communicating electronically. And I deal with this with my own children. I've got a, a 13-year-old and, and a 15-year-old. And 
my 13-year-old, he can talk to me all the way to school if it's just he and he and I in the car. But he never stops to ask if I'm interested in what he's talking about. So we have a lot of conversations about that. And I, I think this first chapter uh, assumes that you've actually learned how to listen and ask questions in the midst of disseminating information. Well, you've said something that's brilliant, and most people don't get that right off the bat, is that we don't have conversations, Cheeky. We have dueling monologues. Um, Everybody is thinking about what they have to say versus how someone else is interpreting or taking it in or getting them engaged um, and this is true of why I think we have such a high rate of divorce. We have such a disconnect between children and parents uh, in friendships. It's it's across the board, um, and I don't I don't always understand everything someone is saying to me. I try, and Mia Copa, I can be just as guilty as the next person for jumping ahead and wanting my point of view to be out front. Um, but it's something that I do believe is a is the secret sauce to changing the relationships between human beings in business, on the world stage, in the economic crisis that we're facing right now, in the differences between countries and the way in which people are interacting with one another in the Far East, in the Middle East, in the U.S., in Europe. Um, we need a better way to exchange worldviews, to understand each other's standards, to address the concerns, without which we will be at war on every front in our lives, economically, right. in business, in our family lives. Um, I wanted this book to really be about something so simple that it didn't require a committee to sit down and put together a manifesto or to completely re-engineer every process in a company or do a total reorganization or constantly meet conflict with more conflict by going to war and doing more of that. When do we get to a place where we step back and try to have a conversation? Right. And I do believe that the answer to our ills today, all of our ills, lies in the ability to have a complete conversation. It won't be easy. Right. I don't think it always ends up in a positive outcome. But I do believe if we made more of an effort to really have those conversations, to really establish common worldviews, acceptable standards, understand each other's concerns, I think we could have a very different experience in our lives. Right. right. And, you know, Chapter 2 of this book uh, deals with a, a, a topic that's near and dear to my heart because the bulk of my uh, career as a consultant, I have uh, been working on mergers and acquisitions. And yes. so you're, you're talking about M&A and bringing different companies and different cultures and, I mean, obviously different people 
together, all of whom have uh, their own view of their world, and again, maybe have some common uh, vocabulary because of being in the same industry. But you call this a Petri dish for chocolate conversation. Yes, I do. Talk to me about this whole issue of, of merger and acquisition and the conversations that are necessary to make that succeed. Yeah. So many years ago, I had asked a a young college intern to please do some research around some recent acquisitions we had made in the company and to kind of get to the heart of, you know, what went south. And uh, she worked with uh, one of my anthropologists, which unusual woman who had done uh, the Peace Corps and had studied tribes and, you know, just an interesting person. And what they came back with was the three reasons that acquisitions fail are the same three reasons relationships fail. A, a lack of identity or a loss of identity, a mm-hmm. lack of intimacy, right. and financial pressure. And if the identities were still solid and in place and the intimacy and belonging to the community or to the person existed, then you could get past the financial pressure. But when the other two were in play, the financial pressure was the the straw that broke the camel's back. It hit me like a ton of bricks because I started to look at acquisitions and I thought to myself, why do we acquire a company? Why is Avis right now (laughs) acquiring Zipcar? Because they see something strategically in what Zipcar has been able to do around the customer experience that they love. And they're saying, we need to have that. That's They've got community. They've got people participating. It's a <laughs> whole different gestalt. So most companies are going to buy talent. They'll buy the capability of that other company. They may buy their revenue. Um, they will even buy their customer base. And then the other company says, well, what I like about, in the case of an Avis, is I've got now a global opportunity and a company that can help me scale. Isn't that great? (laughs) Then they come together after they have this incredible aha moment, and they both realize that neither one of them were signed up to buy the other person's culture. Exactly. How we do things around here. And culture is how we do things Mm. around here. So I love your talent, but I really hate your people. Um, I love your capabilities, but the culture and the talent that got you there, not too crazy about that. I want the way in which you grow revenue, and I certainly want your customers. I want your big global ideas, but I certainly don't want that culture that you bring because I don't really like the way you do things around here, and your people (laughs) are just drones. So by the time you get through, um, when you take the DNA of an entire company and you throw it into a blender and say, let's get this fruit smoothie, um, basically it is ripe for chocolate conversations. Different worldviews, different standards, the concerns are popping up all over. You look at the AOL, uh, you know, Time Warner merger, it was an absolute disaster. What will Zipcar and Avis be like? Not sure. Um, and and you and you've lived it, Cheeky, so you know. Oh what yeah, I'm and I've been about. in the travel industry my whole life, so you know, picking picking a travel 
example was just perfect. And, you know, I, I did my first uh, M&A work when I was inside of the Sabre organization when it was still a part of American Airlines. And we were trying to merge with a division of Delta. And we found out pretty quickly because I was on the team that was looking at the just the business processes that, you know, in order to uh, spend $25 on an expense report, they had to get vice president approval at Delta. And, you know, we were in a culture where, you know, we didn't have to ask permission for anything. I mean, you, you asked forgiveness on the back end. And so just even some of the most basic things Absolutely. Uh, I got exposed to. Um, at that time. Well, we need to to plow on through because there's so much meat in this book, and I could spend uh, the whole time talking about different uh, M&A activity I've been involved in, but that's for another day. So Chapter 3 is has a very interesting title, Addicted to Relevance. Yes. So talk to me about that. Yeah, I sure can. Um, and I'll make this very quick and easy. Every place I go today, every C-level executive I talk to today is focused on growth. Uh, Fifteen years ago, everybody was focused on profit. And it was really, let's be the Wall Street darling. Um, and they did it any way they could do it. And you remember this, Cheeky. Right. It was all about you know shareholder value and what is my stock price, my P-E ratio. Everybody was on to it. And growth became sort of flat year over year because as long as you were taking cost out of the business and making your profit, you were a hero. Now today, I mean, they're down to the bone after so many restructures. They don't have enough resources in the company. They're looking for money to acquire other companies, to acquire new talent. So the only way we can do it is to grow. How do we grow? Um, and that focus has absolutely paralyzed all the change agendas and initiatives going on in companies today because they're buying companies, previous chapter, and having problems realizing the upside of those mergers and acquisitions. They are pushing people to grow revenue, and the one thing they're not thinking about is, are we relevant? Is what we're selling, what we're offering as a service to our customers relevant is our brand relevant? Because relevance is the secret sauce to growth. Steve Jobs never worried about growth because he was so addicted to relevance and bringing in exactly what people wanted, whether it was a thousand songs in your pocket or this crazy iPad that nobody in the world ever needed, asked for, wanted, and now can't live without. Um, and that level of of addiction to the to the idea that we will always solve a customer problem, something a customer doesn't even know they have, has driven that company to exponential growth. Right. So this chapter is all about not just Steve Jobs, but any company, Zipcar. They figured out what was relevant in urban areas for kids who couldn't afford to buy cars or rent them. And they right. got it great. They got it right. Um, Zappos figured it out. There are so many companies out there. Netflix figured it out when people were going to blockbusters and being punished for bringing the videos back late. Um, how do we do this differently? So this chapter is all about you want to grow, you want to scale, 
and you want to do it profitably, let's think about the one key to all of that. Be relevant. Right. I love that. I love that because, uh, you know, I, I've been in an industry that was one of the pioneers uh, of selling its products online. We we actually sold our products online for 20 years before the Internet became ubiquitous. And uh, we have done a very, very poor job, though, of being relevant to what the customers are actually wanting and needing. And here we are about 35 years into electronic distribution of travel, and the major companies who do that still only sell less than 5% uh, of their total transactions are hotel bookings, and the rest is air. And you would think, well, yeah, that that kind of makes sense. And it's like, no, it doesn't. Only 17% of all travel is by air. And so there's this whole issue of being relevant to how people want to travel that Absolutely. They, haven't, they haven't gotten. And, you know, I do believe relevance is the answer. And, you know, it, it can manifest itself in a lot of different ways of delivering products and services, you bring up Zappos. Zappos is one of the only companies that I know of that is selling hard goods like, you know, shoes. And they've got thousands of videos of their products. You would think, videos of shoes? Yes. Well, they figured out that people really wanted to see all around it, which is why they would go to a shoe store. And so they solved it with video, and they increased their conversion something like 35-fold. I mean, it was unbelievable. It's amazing. So. And and then if you think of the, um, the Amazon-Zappos partnership, um, Amazon's not going to change Zappos' culture, and Zappos isn't looking to change Amazon's culture. One is just realizing our front stage won't change. Our backstage will. We will use Amazon as a delivery uh, vehicle, and how good is that? And Zappos gets to still be the company that they've always been um, in their customer community. So there are ways to work this out. They figured out how to be relevant to each other. That's another thing. When right. you acquire a company, you've got to think, how relevant are we to each other? And how do we make this work? And it's the same way in a marriage. You know, I tend to like to spend a little more freely, cheeky, and my <laughs> husband is more conservative. That. And that, that balance has been great for us. Um, but we respect each other, and right. we have, you know, a respect for each other's identity, and we our intimacy is based on that. So it's that kind of thing that I think people overlook. So that's the, the book on relevance. Right, and so the next one is it, it starts with you, and, and I'm assuming the it there is conversation. And so uh, walk us through the the concept of it starts with you. Yeah, so so many times, and you've lived this, and I've enjoyed our conversation thus far because I can see that you've been out there and understand this. <laughs> yes. They don't get it. No, that's not the case. Um, but you hear it all the time. I, I sit with leaders that I advise, and they go, you know, Rose, they just don't get it. And we don't get it. That's the issue that's at hand. You have to look at you. When something's not going right, the easiest thing in the world is to blame it on everything or everyone else. We don't have the right product. We don't have the right process. Our people are just not lined up. There's just so many things that we could talk to, and sometimes that can be true. I mean, you may not have a product that's relevant. You may have to relook at that. But then again, that starts with you. Are you willing to step back and say that to yourself? 
so this whole chapter is about only you can do you and only you can change you. And the change you make in you affects and impacts everything else. And as a leader, the old statement, the buck stops here, um, I think that that's true. And I believe that if you're looking for everyone else to make the difference, you're in the wrong conversation. Because it's the conversation that you have with yourself, that honest, raw conversation where you really look at yourself and say, what can I do differently? What do I need to make happen? Now, you go right from that into asking the question, why do good people have bad conversations? Mm-hmm. And I, I have a theory about this, so it'll be interesting to see if it lines up with your your research and experience. And I deal with with my children uh, again on this all of the time. I just fairly recently took over the role of motherhood, and that doesn't mean that I just adopted children. It's uh, I had been on the road. Uh, the better part of of my career, and my husband had been Mr. Mom until about 15 months ago. So I found myself, you know, walking into parenting, you know, an 11 and a 13-year-old who were about to, you know, turn turn into teenagers, young teenagers. And we talk a lot about conversation in our household because I realize that the people who don't know how to converse were actually allowed to do that as children and that all they're doing is repeating what they've done all of their lives and that you have to actually uh, get people to focus on this uh, when when they're young so that they don't develop all of these bad habits. So good people do have bad conversations. I've had plenty of these. So talk to us about this theory. Yeah, I, I do believe that for the most part, um, we don't have a lot of people out there that are Machiavelli or <laughs> right. evil. Um, I, I think people mean well. And, you know, so often I will hear people say to me, gee, I went into this conversation and I really wanted to be helpful and I really wanted to get to the heart of it and it just all went bad. Um, and I've got a couple of very good examples in the book. And, you know, one is a business example uh, where a conversation gets co-opted. You go in, you have something that you intend to discuss. The person that has agreed to have the conversation with you takes you down a different track. And everything blows up and you walk out of there and very disappointed and it didn't go the way you had hoped it would go. How do you deal with someone hijacking your conversation? How do you bring it back on track? That's a big problem today in business. Um, and it happens all the time, and you never get to have the conversation you would hope to have. So there's stuff in the book that talks to how to set up a conversation, how to keep it on track, how to engage that other person based on what you have requested, and that you don't let somebody hijack your conversation, whether it's your kid, your husband, or whatever. There's another personal story in the book. I did adopt a child uh, when he was two days old. He's now 28 and the love of my life, married and all. But when I, I would like you, Cheeky, was working lots of hours on a very big career path, and I was asked by a group of people, and I tell this story in the book, to bring Zach in. And I was so excited, and of course he was very, you know, one month old, I was still on maternity leave, and I'd walked in and several of my colleagues had gathered round, all excited about seeing the baby, and this very mean-spirited woman who I had worked with throughout the years and found difficult to deal with, 
just came up and basically said, is that your adopted child? And, you know, I'd hoped that she had, would have said it differently, is that your new right. baby, whatever. Uh, but I answered because I was on such a high, and I thought, I'm not letting her rain on this parade. So I said, yes, this is Zachary, this is my new baby, and I'm very excited. And uh, she said, there's nothing like having your own. And oh I thought, goodness. wow. Uh, and the room, and the group of people went down, and I thought to myself, I have to do something differently here. Uh, and it was probably after many months of thinking about conversations, by the way. But I, right. I looked at her and I said to her, you know, you're right. When my niece was born, first child to the family, I held her and I could not believe what a beautiful baby she was. And I thought I'd never have that feeling again. But when I picked up my own son, you're right, there is nothing like having your own. And I talk in the book about reframing conversation so that as a good person, you don't have to have a bad conversation. In this case, she was rendered kind of speechless, and the rest of the group thought, oh, and they kind of gave a benefit of the doubt, and it all fizzled out, and she went back to her office. Later came up and and ended up apologizing to me. And, And the thing, it doesn't always work that way. But I do believe that, you know, she had something else on her mind. Um, It could have been any number of things, but she wanted to have uh, the conversation she wanted to have. So I do often think that because we react rather than taking the time to either postpone the conversation and have it when we're ready, get it back on track, or reframe it. Right. Um, you can you can avoid a bad conversation. Well, you and I do have an awful lot in common, and I actually did uh, adopt my son. Uh, I just didn't adopt him recently. Uh, actually, tomorrow is the ten year anniversary of adopting my son. He was congratulations when we adopt him, adopted him, and and uh, there there's probably another whole book uh, about that whole topic. But you know, we had to learn how to converse with this little Russian boy who spoke toddler Russian, so that you couldn't even look things up because I I would ask the translator, well, what did he just say? And she'd look at me and she'd say, well, nothing really. <laughs> So I thought, oh, great, how am I going to learn how to communicate with him? But, you know, we are running out of time, and, you know, I hate to cut this short because I I just have so, so enjoyed uh, listening to you, and I, I wish we could take the time. So we're going to fast forward just a little bit to your last uh, chapter. Uh, actually, Chapter 6 is uh, Go There, and we could probably spend a half an hour on that one because I think I know what's behind that. Message discipline is another topic that you cover, extending your reach. But the one I want to uh, end on is is really part of your subtitle of your book about leading bittersweet change, transforming your business. So change is bittersweet. Any of us who have have had to make any major changes in our lives understand that. So talk to me about how that relates back to conversation. Yeah, so I think probably the toughest things that we're facing today, and they probably were during the days of other generations like my parents going through the Depression and trying to build out of that, um, we're forced, change is forced on us, and we don't always get to choose the changes we'd like to make. And so when it is, leading our way through that, as you stated in, in the book subtitle, is it's bittersweet. And understanding up front that it is bittersweet, that it is not something that's going to be easy, that it is not about drinking the Kool-Aid. We're asking others to drink the Kool-Aid. 
But my point on this is that stay on course. I think when you're making um, a transform, when you have to transform your company or, or make a big change or respond to what's going on around you that is causing you to have to change, that requires a certain constitution, a fortitude, an ability to go the distance and stay the course. And so often people get to a place where they keep changing course. It's too difficult, so let's go back to business as usual and then flip back on when we can. And that just causes more pain than it does help. Um, And this chapter is all about staying the course, trying to keep things, oddly enough, more narrow than broad. Whenever you have to make big change, the worst thing you can do is put a lot of things in play. So this chapter talks about being very disciplined about what are the big levers that you choose to deal with um, to make that change so that you're not doing everything all at once and paralyzing the system. That's what this chapter is all about. And message discipline, quite frankly, led up to a cheeky, which is if I stay on message, if I stay the course, message discipline will drive operational discipline and people will follow me. But if I'm constantly into the crisis of the moment and the new flavor of the month and the new this and the new that, all I do is slow things down rather than move them forward. Um, So this whole chapter is about staying the course, staying on message, bucking through, you know. Uh, It's the old Winston Churchill, bugger on, you know, because (laughs) you cannot cannot make change happen if you are going to re-correct and mid-course correct all the time. You may have to do some of it, but that's what this chapter is about. And just so that you don't feel that we sort of skimmed over, um, all the chapters lead up to how to make change happen. And Go There is a very simple chapter about not being afraid. You know how people often say, Cheeky, don't go there. When you bring up something that it drives, I hate it. I absolutely hate it. Because if you don't, (laughs) yes, if you don't go there, you can't deal with it. So it, it really is about take it on. Take it on, and change is going to be bittersweet. No one said this was going to be an easy ride. This thing that we're dealing with as a country right now and getting ourselves back on good economic footing, it's hard. I don't care who's at the helm. And we've got to be able to stay the course and see our way through, and that's what this is about. And there are some methods and ways in which you get to do that, and um, I'm hoping that this book helps people who need to lead bittersweet change in order to transform their businesses, that that this book will help them do that. Well, Rose, it has been terrific. And for people that want to get in touch with you, you have a a very clever name for your company, which is a play on uh, your own name and the whole concept of fast forwarding. The company name is Fast Forward, F-A-S-S, forward.com is how you can find Rose. And your book is available just about anywhere they would like to buy it? That's correct. You can get it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, uh, in the .com 
uh, or you can go into one of the Barnes & Noble stores, whatever suits your, your liking, and you can certainly buy it off the website on Fast Forward. And it, there's also rosefast.com, which links directly to the book, directly to the Chocolate Conversation right. and our website. And also, you do quite a bit of, of uh, speaking at uh, both private and public sector events, so if somebody is interested in uh, having you come speak to their team, they can also find your information there as well, correct? Absolutely. Well, Rose, it has been terrific. I know uh, we both said we had a hard stop at uh, at quarter to one, so we are right uh, just a little bit past that, so I want to be uh, mindful of your time today. And I just hope you have a terrific weekend, and I look forward to reconnecting. Uh, next time I am coming to the New York area, I am definitely giving you a call. We'll go out for some chocolate. <laughs> I would love it. I would love it, and I'll be happy to have a glass of red wine with you. <laughs> oh, that sounds even better. Yeah. All all right, okay, Rose, thank well, you, I Cheeky. You it's been a pleasure. A, great. Talk to you soon. You got it. Bye, Patty. Bye-bye.